Ah, oh, for Christ's sake, Anakin. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. I'm your host, Matthew Neugebauer, coming to you live to air in cold. Today it's overcast. Suburban Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Goes back and forth. It was nice and sunny yesterday. It'll be nice and sunny tomorrow. In case you need to know, it is Thursday, December 3rd, 2020. It's the Thursday after the first Sunday of Advent, if you're counting. And yes, we have turned the corner on the church year. We're waiting to turn the corner on the rest of the calendar year. I'm joined, as always, by the greatest droid in the galaxy, R2-D2, and my trusty water bottle. And I also have some good old black coffee, because I'm recording this in the afternoon, and that's what we do. And so I'll take a swig and let R2 say hello. Today on the pull list, very briefly, we talk about Undiscovered Country number 10, and uh, also from Charles Sewell, The High Republic Light of the Jedi Exer. But that's not quite pull list, but I wanted to mention some High Republic news and tidbits. So, Undiscovered Country number 10, also by Scott Snyder, of course, explores the Unity territory a bit more and the history of the Second Sealing. It really is going for this question of, you know, is America better together or apart? And uh, the answer is together, but respecting diversity, too, I gather, is where they're going. So from Charles Soule, so a few weeks ago, uh, they meant to, of course, release Light of the Jedi, I guess, in October, I believe it was, September, October. Uh, that's been pushed to January, but online they released eight chapters of Light of the Jedi. Um, there, he also has some interviews up on StarWars.com and a short story in Star Wars Insider that comes out in the next few weeks. So... A few things to, to bring together between Undiscovered Country and this Light of the Jedi excerpt. I do recommend you go read uh, read both, of course. The idea of the ceiling itself, the idea that in, in Undiscovered Country, the conceit is that America has raised up all these border walls and it closed itself off to explore a, a more perfect union. There's also the line, we are all the Republic in Light of the Jedi, all the Republic, and that raises some interesting questions on my end, both of those, right? How do Charles Soule and Scott Snyder, how do they conceive of human and, from my perspective, ecclesial bonds that go beyond America, right? Is openness to the ceiling, at least eventually people come around to it, Does is that actually a cautionary tale that they can cut themselves off from the rest of the world and want to <laughs> is, is that ultimately a cautionary tale? Uh, a similar question, it's We Are All the Republic, and that seems to be still already 200 years before the Empire, or 230 years before the Empire, already where the faith and collective identity of the people lie. And so uh, I'm wondering, is there a concept of Catholicity, especially how do the, how the Jedi understand their own collective identity, across the galaxy is there a concept of catholicity is there an idea of, or even a concept of christendom that i thought it might be or is it something maybe closer to the english reformation's emphasis on national unity and the church's role in that so that's uh questions i'm 
wondering about fodder for a future episode of FCSA for sure. Um, when I get to just a little bit of a tidbit, I've considered this quote season three of FCSA when I get into full on High Republic commentary. That'll be season four, and I'm probably going to change up the music and intro stuff for that. I'll still call it, for Christ's sake, Anakin, even though Anakin has not been born yet, <laughs> quite, or conceived it, or however that happens. Uh, I'll still call it, for Christ's sake, Anakin. Why not? Okay, a bit more coffee. And then I want to dive in. So this week, again... Mando giving me things to think about, and the yeah I, I found myself thinking a lot about this episode of uh, of the Mandalorian. This past one, I know we're about uh, eleven hours away from the next one, <laughs> but give me give me time to stew over the live action appearance of Ahsoka Tano, who uh, I I mean I would say without question is my favorite character in all of television history because in part because the clone wars is now my favorite series in all of television history especially after that incredible siege of mandalore arc at the end of season seven so this i mean this episode was definitely the most hyped and the most anticipated episode of the mandalorian from beginning of season one we thought okay is ahsoka gonna show up and then we saw um the art, the uh, the the writers list, and saw how season five, or sorry, episode five of this season was going to be uh, the Dave Filoni directed and written episode. So I was like, okay, yeah, Soka's showing up. They never downplayed the rumors about Rosario Dawson. So the way they did about uh, I forget his name, but the person who the whole thing with Ezra, they never downplayed these rumors. So going in, we kind of had a sense, and. What that means is going in, I think there were actually a lot of things stacked against it. The challenge, maybe things that we weren't necessarily conscious of. Think about our loyalty to Ashley Eckstein, and we know how she felt about not really even being considered for live action, even though I think we understand, given the physicality and just the appearance of Ahsoka, the higher profile of someone like Rosario Dawson, we still feel for Ashley. She has given everything to this character. Uh, so I think that one of the things that made it difficult for people going into the episode, uh, everything we've invested in this character, again, uh, the greatest character in TV history, we have such a high standard uh, uh, for her to get it right and for Rosario Dawson and for Dave Filoni and for everybody working on the show to get it right was such a high standard uh, thing I call Uncanny Plateau, which I think I mentioned with the Bo-Katan episode, like Uncanny Valley, but the uh, the challenge in our perceptions and also the challenge in the actual production of moving a character from, not moving a character, but taking a character that we know in animation, moving to live action, uh, that adjustment that we all have to make we have to climb i call it a plateau because i think once we're there originally it's a shift and a kind of a jarring shift but once we're there like i am with bo katan yeah, we're there uh, and then the lawsuit which i won't say much about i don't again i don't quite know um, what 
fully to believe they're accepted to believe that if people feel, you know, people in the trans community feel hard done by them, we need to pay attention to that. All I'll say more about that is Chuck Wendig needs to come back and write a Star Wars. I know that was a much lower profile, but the precedent's been set. So, you know, if, uh, if Gina Carano and Rosario Dawson are going to be front and center, that's not the best look whatever the facts happen to be, it's not the best look. Chuck Wendig needs to come back, and, and of course Lucasfilm needs to do more in, in investing in and in, in telling queer stories and trans stories. And um, They're starting, but compared to Marvel and compared to Star Trek especially, they're well behind. So I know we saw, so the actual reaction to this episode was quite mixed, Um and quite polarized, I think. Some people were very... A lot of people were incredibly enthusiastic. It depends on what space you go to. I saw in some of the Facebook groups, they were incredibly enthusiastic. Loved the episode from start to finish. Um, were able to get past the Uncanny Plateau. Some people, you know, that lawsuit really weighed heavily on them. And they... Uh, you know, and I don't know how much this played into how well they were able to appreciate this episode, but they, I mean, the people I saw who the lawsuit weighed heavily, they also happened to dislike the episode. Uh, a lot of people were quite underwhelmed, kind of like, eh, okay, in the middle. I had that very mixed reaction. I think the performance for Rosario Dawson uh, overall, her performance, it was mostly good. Um, I really, I really liked when she was sitting down with the child. I can't quite get across, get get over, call him Grogu yet. When he was, she was sitting down with the child. I thought all that interaction was wonderful and really sweet and tender. Uh, she had a lot of. What was it? Not apathy. The opposite. Empathy. <laughs> empathy and compassion and sensitivity to this child and, and was tapping into the Force and finally telling his story um, and, and interpreting it in light of her story. And I'll get to that a little bit. Uh, I do think that the performance itself could have had a little more melancholy to the bit of the mention of how not many Jedi left. Um... But she seemed a little too together. And and I do preface that, or I do caveat that by saying, I mean, Dave Filoni in, in a recent The Vanity Fair, I believe it was a Vanity Fair article, said she's at this point she's a master. She's very serene. She's coming into her own, really as the heir apparent to Qui-Gon in that way. She... Uh, I think we're used to, even in Rebels, in her appearance there, having a little more melancholy about the fate of the Jedi. We don't know over the last nine years what she's been up to, but um, yeah, it, very mixed there. The lightsabers were incredible. That was that was <laughs> that appearance was amazing, and the fact that they didn't leave us in suspense right the first 
within the first, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds, we see Ahsoka Tano lightsabers by Rosario, played by Rosario Dawson, taking out these guards. Um, I think on that perform, on the appearance though, I'm, I'm still climbing on Candy Plateau here. And I, and I actually, frankly, I don't think they got it right. I'm on the side of, with the, the, the Montrals and Headtails, they needed to be longer. Uh, they didn't like the wrinkles. <laughs> um, it looked like a, like a cosplay. And the problem with that is twofold is, uh, you know, we expect, well, we, first we expect professionals to do a better job with that. Uh, especially either, um, having the right materials or just using CG, it's got to look better than cosplay, right? Cosplay, those guys are amazing and really talented. Uh, but professionals, you know, they were able to use CG with the Corrin. That, you know, fitting that action in, that's a difficult uh, appearance to make. Uh, so I was chatting with a cosplayer who has cosplayed as Ahsoka. And she said that they used foam latex. I don't know how much this matters, but they used foam latex when they should have used silicone. I think that's what the wrinkles were about. I I, I know that the point, the reason it was smaller was because uh, for the action sequences and the weight and comfort on Rosario Dawson's head. And I get that, but again, I... You know, so, so I, the the I asked you know the cosplayer again, you know, about the weight about that and silicone. She replied, "Silicone is not that much heavier than latex. They could have used more. Uh, could have made it the full size." And so the reason it's important with the full size, again, goes back to our investment in this character growing up. Um, Star Wars is a visual medium, and. George, going back to Ralph McQuarrie, really doubled down on how the look of environments and characters and costumes and alien creatures and species, they communicate something. And, you know, going back to, was it 2008, where they are quite small, because she's 14 years old, jumping ahead to season seven, where the, the head tails are down to her chest and the montrals are, are a bit taller. That reflects how much she's grown up. And then to, into Rebels, they're even longer, even taller. We know that for Togruta, I mean, they as they age, the, they grow. The, the montrals and head tails grow even past what we would consider puberty. The real thing that it communicates is maturity. It's uh, wisdom of age. It is mastery. Shakti, Master Shakti, has the full, uh, the full size in live action, even, and especially in animation. I think, you know, out of universe, they could have figured it out a way to either a combination of, of using silicone or tricks and CG. They might have had the budget. I don't know. Uh, 
to figure it out. And in-universe, if Ahsoka is a master, and she is at this point, and not formally, technically, but you know what I mean, she would have learned to adapt with the changes in her own body. She would have learned, okay, well, I have to fight this way, and I have to move my head and my body this way. I have to use my lightsabers and my arms this way. So as that they'd be an advantage and not a, a disadvantage. It, the, the appearance, it made her look a little more juvenile than... Uh, than, than she was, and she is supposed to be in this episode. So, I I am on, I know, I'm on the side of they should have been bigger. Um, but, you know, hopefully, either I'll get used to it, or, you know, for whenever she might come back in live action, I'll maybe I'll get used to it, or they'll recognize, okay, they need to do a better job with this, and this was a one-off, a one-shot test, and I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's that's my hope. Okay, I need a bit more coffee, and then I'll get into a more deeper conversation. Right. RT wants into. So, again, I said the most interesting bit of this, and the, most, the best acted, was when she's sitting down silently, and this isn't a knock, right? It, the facial expressions and the uh, communication that they spent this long time with the sun going down and her and oh, I can call him Grogu fine <laughs> uh, sitting down and communing and, and learning her story his story and it, and it makes sense that it's through someone who is sensitive in the force who can know his story um, what it brings up then is well is the question is Ahsoka going to take him and train him and we all wondered about that but the way the episode is played is and the way the series as a whole is played is we really hope he doesn't right that there is this bond that is being made they even bring back the ball on the, the control uh, the flight control thing on the ship that that symbolizes the bond between the Mandalorian and the child. There's an attachment there. And so ultimately Ahsoka, well, not ultimately at first, in the initial dialogue saying this attachment makes him vulnerable. And clearly she's, we, we know she's thinking about, about Anakin Vader and, how you know, her journey, well, first of all, what she knows, and we know she knows about, she knew about Padme, and that's, that's even, that's been suggested in, in uh, Forces of Destiny, she, she knows about Padme. And, and the, the impact of losing Padme, the, the impact on Anakin that losing Padme had, the impact that, uh, the, uh, on her going, leaving the order, that that had on Anakin. So she's responding to another potential break of relationship, and she you also noticed we thought Rex would be in there as part of uh, 
part of her crew and, and with it with her and Rex isn't there and we know they had an attachment too. And then in the end, of course, she decides uh, I can't train this child. I can't take him away and uh, instead go to Tython, to Great Lord Drop, go to Tython, um, go take him to this mountain and then he'll decide. Yeah, very interesting lore drop, important story decision that I do get and do appreciate. It raises a few questions. It raises at least a possibility. Does Ahsoka, is she clinging to the traditional standard Jedi view of attachments? Does she believe that its attachments themselves that are... Uh, a risk and a threat that that that's why Anakin went to the dark side right that the attachments themselves does she feel guilty we we saw this in in the rebels uh you know the I forget the at least certainly in in the um the episode where they go into the Lothal temple does she feel guilty for leaving him still right 9 years after confronting that guilt she definitely does confront that guilt for leaving him, leaving Anakin. That that influenced him to turn to the dark side. Um, and so is that informing her decisions still to not train this child and not take him away from... To not take him away from Din? Well, because... Well, sorry, let me, let me back up here. To not train him because he has this attachment to Din. Right. I'm not so sure that's the case. Let me just be clear. I, I Is she refusing to train the child because she ha- he has an attachment? <laughs> I, I'm not so sure that convinced that's the case, quite frankly. Like I, I've said a few times already, the thing about Ahsoka is as a servant of the light as a greater servant of the light than Jedi, she's had to reflect on the legacy of the Jedi and say, well, what can we grow? What can we gain? What do we have to reject? And, I mean, I'm coming at this from from this view that the issue with the Jedi wasn't... Uh, well, the issue with the Jedi was that they had this blanket approach to attachments. Right, I mean, and we, and that's a common view uh, of of the Jedi in, in the late Republic. Even we we look at Master and Apprentice and how Qui Gon and Obi Wan they have to stifle their sense of connection to each other in order to fulfill the mission or to consider uh, Qui Gon considering joining the High Council. So it sounds like. Ahsoka is continuing along this path, right? Maybe she and she doesn't know how Luke, how Anakin has come back to the light, and uh, we've had conversations about that. But I'm not convinced that that's why she wants to uh, refuses to train the child. The teaching that I think she's trying to recover, though, is that. 
yes, there's the potential for attachments to cause fear and loss and hate and anger and suffering. But even loss and suffering don't necessarily lead some to the dark side. Fear and hate do. Loss and suffering don't necessarily. Loss and suffering can be taken up into authentic grief. Like we saw in the the Vader comic, right? Uh, Darth Sidious is chastising Vader for uh, not using his loss to channel into hate, but into grief. Because grief is healthy and brings you to the light. And here's the, the main point I want to bring to is grief uh, expressed in family and in community brings people closer together. When you examine, and we talk about the gray, or we talk about looking at the shadow side, examining the shadow side of yourself, that does not make you a gray Jedi. (laughs) That brings you closer to the light because you have a fuller perception of yourself. You have a fuller perception of your own vulnerabilities and that opens you up to healthy attachments. And that's where I think Ahsoka is at least hoping to nudge Din and the child forward. They bring up all of Grogu's Grogu's loss and fear and potential for anger and hate. Um, I mean, anger itself is also not something that necessarily leads to the dark side, but hate and fear, again, do. His willingness to protect Din at all costs when he is choking Kara because of the arm wrestling thing for season one. There is the potential for the dark side, but as they explore and uh, this, this newfound understanding of Grogu's story as one of, of, of loss and of fear and of vulnerability, we can see him growing in consciousness of his vulnerability and of his promise to, to serve the light and to seek the welfare of others. Right. We're even starting to see that in the last few episodes, in that quote-unquote filler episode. It wasn't a filler with the spiders. He's starting to actually learn, oh, these eggs, they're actually become people. <laughs> I can't, shouldn't be eating them. Yes, they need to be fertilized and all that, fine. But uh, what, you know, where he's going to learn that, and this is, this is the point here, he's going to learn that by watching Din and by going along with Din who follows the Mandalorian Code. And that the Mandalorian Code, at its best, also calls for the fostering of healthy attachments within which grief and loss can be processed, as well as promise and hope and encouragement and strength and gifts, as we call it. You know, in church land we call it gifts and callings and whatnot. There's the potential there. Here's the thing. I'm going to take a swig of water. You know, here's the thing, though, is the Jedi at their best have always upheld those kinds of attachments. Ahsoka herself, uh, 
when you know in the Martez arc, uh, that that beautiful line where she learned fr- she learned it from her brother. Her brother taught her, thinking about Anakin, about learning. I think to to ward off the the people who were troubling the the sisters. My brother taught me that connection. Qui Gon declines uh, declines the seat on the council, so he can continue to invest in Obi Wan and help him become more flexible and and solid at the same time, become that master that he is meant to be. The idea is the child is going to come to a place that he can discern what he wants to do and what he is meant to do again Christian talk what he is called to do by the force by going up that mountain with Din it has to be within the one he's already formed this attachment with this bond with what are we going to see going forward hopefully you know in, in uh, ten and a half hours. I'm not going to stay up to watch it, but tomorrow morning when I watch it, the first step towards uh, really cementing that, sharing his story more deeply. Um, you know, we, I, I do speculate, and this is my my speculation. I think Din is going to remove his helmet and and show the child his face. We already know it's this kind of this odd, bizarre thing where child hasn't seen his face, but he wants to, right? Where he's taking the sip of the soup and this excited breathing. and He hasn't seen. What does he look like? Again, going back to this point about the visual medium, to see someone's face is to see something of who they are, to look into their eyes, right? in person I mean that's what the struggle of our time right now is we can only really see each other in these rectangular squares on on a computer screen and that's what we've resorted to because it's all we've got to be safe and to to end this pandemic somehow but that's also the challenge is to be face to face with someone is to know them. The, think of, of St. Paul's line in 1 Corinthians. Now we see through a mirror darkly. Then we will see God face to face. Right? To know as we are known. And so to know, and, and so that's the connection to know and to be known. That's probably partly why the Mandalorian Creed or, or the, the these children of the watch the, I mean, why they have this this rule of keeping the helmet on is to preserve anonymity. Uh, I think partly that's also to subsume their identity into the collective, which isn't healthy either. But what all this points to is one of the great strengths of the Jedi Order and the Mandalorian Code is that they provided these attachments. Right? That the master and Padawan attachment, the camaraderie throughout the order uh, that uh, you know pervades even in probably through the great disaster, 
as we'll see with High Republic, the camaraderie that we see with Anakin and Obi-Wan. Of course, in the end, you know, it isn't an attachment between Anakin and Padme that leads Anakin to the dark side. It's his, his, his desire to control it. Um, you know, as Luke debating with Ray, you know, Ray, by the way, who's looking for an attachment here, Luke debating with Ray was a Jedi master who, who led Darth Vader to the dark side. Or, or led him to follow the dark side, which is a spurious thing because it's also his attachment with Darth Sidious that really leads him down that path. Um, you know, Ahsoka sees that part too, sees this aspect of um, how her attachment with Anakin, Anakin's attachment with Obi Wan, Obi Wan's attachment with Qui Gon camaraderie again throughout the order between Anakin and Obi-Wan uh, all the masters together at their best was a mutually supportive family and I think about why they're celibate I bring in those monastic tradition that monastic tradition well what celibacy really means is that their your main attachment your primary attachment happens to be a non-sexual one it can be a communal one that isn't sexual <laughs> um you know she sees that i think osoka sees that possibility but she doesn't we don't know what she knows about anakin ultimately but it is of course an attachment that brings him back to the light at the end so he rejects the false attachment with sidious for the sake of a true attachment with, with his son Luke, even in its fleeting days, and thus redeems and fulfills his attachment to Padme. That I was getting at with, uh, with talking about the Vader comic. Similarly, this, this attachment between Din and the child, that at the end, Ahsoka is unwilling to break up. Is unwilling to say, uh, you know, the well, or is unwilling to say, yeah, I'll take him and you'll you'll go off on your way, because at this point, I know it's a cheesy line, but they complete each other, right? Now, it's a cheesy way of putting it, but they are a clan in the Mandalorian sense. they don't really exist independent of each other anymore. And that's the way the series is being set up. That's the way this episode was set up. The whole thing, time to say goodbye at the end, and they spend how many hours, and they keep Ahsoka waiting (laughs) back in the town. Um, Clearly, this is meant to be a bond, a father-son bond. Uh, you know, Ahsoka also mentions that you're like his father. It's a, a bond that ultimately serves the light. It's one that the Jedi at their best could have fostered. The one that they were corrupt and they had fallen, so they needed this blanket system of control. Fine. Let's 
mind the baby out of the bathwater. Let's take the child out of the bathwater, so to speak. I do think that comes across in this episode. Um, we'll see how, again, how that plays out in the end, in the rest of the season. There's only three episodes left in this season, which is hard to believe, but, right? Six, seven, eight? Yeah, I can do math. <laughs> um, and, you know, and that's the thing with the season. It has surprised me uh, with where it's gone and where it's going. So... I think sky's the limit in terms of what we might actually see. No pressure, Favreau and Filoni, but um, it, it's, I didn't expect it to give me this much to think about, quite frankly. And it has, and it is. So uh, so those are my thoughts. That is me weighing in <laughs> uh, on Mandalorian Season 2, Episode 5, The Jedi. Who is the Jedi? Is Ahsoka the Jedi, I guess. Um Thanks for listening and for joining with me. Uh, I don't know. I might actually take a bit of a break just to refocus on moving into season four of For Christ's Sake Hannigan. But for now, if you would like to give me a follow on Twitter at NEUG485, give me a follow on Instagram at MNEUG1138. This has been episode 68 of For Christ's Sake Hannigan. Thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you, always.